Howdy and welcome to the show. Cooper's Code examines a legal issue and hits the highlights, so we all achieve the best results for our clients. I'm Miles Cooper, and with today's guest, Carol Okolowitz, Cooper's LLP attorney, we will be discussing the new mandatory initial disclosures in California that took effect January 1st, 2024, and how they'll impact civil litigation. Before we get into today's topic, a few words about Cooper's LLP. We at Cooper's are committed to thought leadership, developing the best talent, and honing skills through learning, practice, trial, and the relentless pursuit of justice for consumers. With lawyers licensed in California, Oregon, and Washington, we're available for free strategic consultation on cases, and we accept referrals, trial, co-counsel opportunities. For more information, visit our website at coopers.law or email us at podcast at coopers.law. Welcome back to the show, Carol. Thanks. Before we started, I asked you if you had done any federal work in terms of rule Rule 26 disclosures, and it sounds like that's something you've encountered in the past. I have. With that in mind, we know now that there is this new mandatory initial disclosure that California has enacted for all cases that have been filed after January 1st, 2024. I'm presuming that you have not received one of these demands yet, given that we're recording this shortly after January 1st. No, I haven't. I anticipate that while there may be some defense firms who don't catch up with this right away, in very short order, much like we file a complaint and then we get an answer, and with that answer, served with the answer, are form ROGs, special ROGs, deposition notice, request for production of documents, request for admissions. I think we'll also be getting this mandatory initial disclosure right off the bat. Yeah, likely. Depends on how they play it. The kind of the nuts and bolts with this new mandatory initial disclosure, it is something that has to be proactively done. Is that fair that you have to, it doesn't just happen, you have to make a demand? Yes, that's part of the rule. Demand has to be made by one of the parties that has appeared. And you can make it as soon as a party has appeared. And so that means if the defendant either moves to strike or demurs or answers, as soon as that happens, you can make it on the defense. Right, yeah. And then the piece that is interesting about it is that it requires that certain information be produced. So while we recommend that everyone take a look at the statute itself, it's not particularly long in terms of the information. It is, in essence, all witnesses and documents. And the categories are broad. For example, in the witness category, everyone likely to have discoverable information along with the subjects of that information used to support claims, defenses, or that is relevant to the subject matter. And the exceptions are witnesses solely for impeachment and experts and consultants. Then the other piece that I think is interesting is that one is entitled to demand contracts and insurance agreements, including the contracts themselves. So there's a fair amount of information from our perspective on the plaintiff's side that the defense has to turn over that usually was the subject of a fair amount of sometimes some fighting. You would run into defendants who would say that the insurance contract is not something that they have to turn over. Did you ever have that experience? Yeah, I've definitely had to fight for contractual language before. And I think the other thing that is important to point out is while this is for all cases, civil cases that have been filed after January 1st, it does not apply to small claims, family law, probate, preference cases, and self-represented parties. But generally, you know, if you're a personal injury lawyer and you're dealing with opposing counsel, you're probably going to be seeing this mandatory initial disclosure on both sides. Fair? Yeah, that's what it looks like. And just to remind everyone, this is CCP 2016.090. Thanks. I don't think we had referred to the section yet. The rule itself is not that complicated. And 
I received an email because we wrote an article on this for Plaintiff Magazine, and Joseph Maloney wrote us, he's a federal practitioner, and commented on how the Federal Rules Committee, when they were enacting Rule 26, had looked at this language, and it's the last portion of the sentence that I just read, or that is relevant to the subject matter. And Joseph was concerned, and I, I think rightfully so, about the duties that that imposes on a lawyer in terms of a duty of candor and how one balances that against the zealous representation of one's client. I think that's fodder for some interesting conversation. Definitely. There's no requirement in this law, in this new rule, about when a party can make this demand. So foreseeably, a party could make this demand very early on, could make it later, whatever, and could make it right away. And so before an attorney, I mean, it depends on when you get the case, how much research you've done, all the rest. Before an attorney digs in and really knows the whole case and all the evidence frontwards and backwards, you could get this demand. So then there's a requirement under the statute that the attorney produce whatever's relevant to the subject matter of the action. Now, of course, I assume you can make all the objections, you know, it doesn't waive objections to comply with this. And this is where this is all, it's going to be jungle ball. It's going to be really interesting, I think, to see how all this gets interpreted by the court. I expect that people will include objections in their responses to the mandatory initial disclosures. There is, however, nothing in the code that says whether one can or cannot object and to what extent the objections have any effect. The other piece is with any new law, there are questions about, you know, is it appropriate law? So I expect we may see some interpretation from the appellate court in the next two, three, four years on this issue about anything relevant to the subject matter. Because that's really that zealous representation versus candor is a real friction point. Yeah. I feel like if I get one of these... I want to put into my response that generic kind of objection that this request asks for information that's not reasonably calculated to lead to admission to whatever, discoverable evidence. The usual lines. Right, right. And, you know, to the extent that there's something that at that time when I'm answering, I don't think is relevant. And it becomes relevant later on, maybe because of a claim that pops up or facts that are discovered. It's not relevant at the time that I'm answering. And that's an area where I think it becomes ripe for controversy because I think anyone who's been practicing for a while has run into the situation where shortly before trial, the other side suddenly has a few more things oops, we forgot about this. Oops, this was hidden in a box somewhere. Oops, we've got a 18-wheeler full of documents. That's a reference to the, uh, the Gene Hackman movie from back in the day, where one side has a different interpretation of what is relevant in the moment. And relevance can sometimes be in the eye of the beholder until it is in front of the judge. Certainly. I've definitely had motions to compel based on relevance. Objections to motions to compel based on relevance. And then we put it in front of the judge. Well, is it relevant or not? And obviously relevance is the, our main standard. It's broad. Initially, I might think the case is all about X. And in the end, 
from the beginning of case to the trial, the case might have come in as an X case, and by the end, it's a Y case. So things that were relevant initially are no longer relevant. It's based on your theories of the case, which I guess are in the complaint. So that's your framing of what's relevant. This brings up two kind of diverging pieces, and one is a nuts and bolts with 2016.090 that people should know, which is, and I'm going off memory, not off my notes, that there is no ongoing duty to update. So once you've responded, there's not an ongoing duty to update. However, you can demand two times before the initial trial setting that the other side update their responses. So as the case goes forward, and these are things that are going to be automatically triggered by calendaring within people's offices, shortly before the trial date, one's going to have a demand for an update to the mandatory initial disclosures. And so as the case develops its patterns, there's a new opportunity for the other side to sit down and re-acknowledge what might be relevant at this point. Right, yeah. On the relevancy side, and this is where, you know, how many angels can dance on the head of a pen, if one is making a demand for future non-economic damages, for example. My client is injured. They're going to have pain and suffering going forward. Arguably, a defense counsel can say, well, I want every single bit of medical history on your client from before, even if it's not related to this incident, because you know, to the extent that your client had an ache and pain, some other thing, there's certainly information out there that's relevant about whether the injury my client caused is the thing that's going to make your client have pain and suffering over the course of their life. As we kind of talk through some nuance, one of the things that frequently comes up in cases is, I would say about 50% of the cases that we're in, the defense asks a question that brings forward what we would call cameo or collateral witnesses. Here's what I mean by that. Our client has an injury, that injury changes our client's life. And there is not a question in the form interrogatories that specifically says, what witnesses are you planning to bring to talk about the change in, in your life? Now, there are some talented defense firms who will ask that special interrogatory or they'll ask that question at deposition, but some don't bother. With 2016, as I understand it, if you don't list the people who you think are relevant to the subject matter as far as that element of the damage is concerned and do so in a way that's early on in the response from the defense, you may be foreclosed to bring those people to trial. That's an interesting point. And that's, I think, something to be explored further. I mean, is that what it is? That if you don't disclose these people, you might be precluded from bringing them to trial? I mean, generally, that's the whip in discovery. Right. Is if you didn't let the other side know about them early enough in the case where the, the other side can do something about it, then the response in, in front of the court is, look, doom on them. They didn't tell me about this person. They didn't tell me about this document. They can't rely on it at a trial. Now, the follow-up question to that, because all of us who have gotten the box of documents two days before trial, what invariably happens is a shame on you from the court and we can't really let the jury not know about the evidence that might be relevant to this case. So I'm telling you that you're really bad and you shouldn't do this again, but we'll let the jury see it. That's been my experience with late disclosed stuff. Well, okay. 
I want to look at the timing of this. Sure. Because you file your complaint, you get a answer, demur, something, defendant appears. Let's say you right away get a, a CCP 2016-090 demand. That doesn't mean you're not going to get supplementals. Correct. So you list everybody you know at the time who's likely to have discoverable information. That's the statute. But you learn more of more people later on. You produce those people's information in a supplemental, in response to a supplemental demand. I think that's all fine. I think where one will run into trouble is where the court thinks that their game is being played. For example, your initial disclosure lists the your client, two doctors, and nothing else. There are two supplemental demands made. You don't provide any more information. Then in the one that the other side makes where you respond shortly before trial, perhaps after formal discovery is closed, meaning they can't send out a depot notice. All of a sudden, you've got 30 witnesses who are all going to come in and talk about how this has ruined your client's life. That's when, if I were the other side, I would go to the court and say, this is baloney. They're playing games. Right, right. There are certainly situations where, say, your client moves or your client has more interactions with friends or there are, are supplemental treating doctors where the information changes over time. But I think that if the other side is not given the opportunity to investigate your claim, that's where you're going to see that motion eliminated, preclude you from using those witnesses or documents. Right. I get that. Also, you know, we're looking at this as if this is the only discovery now, as if it's displaced the Civil Discovery Act, but you can still send out targeted written discovery and take depositions and all the rest. You can. And that's an interesting question is... As one tries to get all the information one needs to be able to prevail in a case and also be efficient on the plaintiff's side, typically contingent fee lawyers want to be efficient in terms of how you handle a case. You want to do all the work necessary to work up the case, and you also don't want to put in unnecessary time if it's completely unnecessary. On the defense side, if it's hourly billing, you want to make sure that you are not overcharging your client for doing the same thing. One tool potentially could be, look, you know, we're a defense counsel. We're going to keep our budget low on defense costs. We're going to simply do a mandatory initial disclosure because we'll do depositions as well. But with a mandatory initial disclosure, we don't have to do form ROGs or RFAs or any of those other things or meet and confer on it. They just have to turn it over. Right. And I think that's the thinking behind the mandatory initial disclosures is to try and streamline discovery. So I'm pausing and revisiting. We're lawyers. We're going to do it all anyway, right? If we've been trained to do ROGs and RFAs and document production requests, we'll do the mandatory initial disclosure and we can't help ourselves. We'll still send the same things out. (laughs) Is that what you're saying? Well, I guess what I'm saying is the initial disclosures seem to me to ask the lawyers for their clients what's relevant, what's likely to be discoverable, and provide that information. But me as the opposing counsel, I might have a different idea about what's relevant. So I've got targeted information that I want that the other side might not even be thinking that they're going to produce to me because why would I even want to know? But I've got a different theory in my head and I know why I want to know. So I want to send out targeted discovery that would not show up in response to an initial disclosure demand. That makes a lot of sense what I described kind of as the both and you're using the mandatory initial disclosure 
And then you are building your case with specific questions or specific areas because you think the defense may not figure that out. I want to go back, though, because it, it triggered something for me. The relevant to the subject matter, if you as the attorney are being forced to interpret what you believe is relevant to the subject matter, and this is where I see the potential for appellate opinions, to a certain extent, your analysis, you attorney, of what is relevant and what is not relevant is attorney work product. Meaning you are taking a look through all this information out there and you are making a decision about, well, if I were the other side and I was a really good lawyer, I would think this is relevant. If I were the other side and I was a really good lawyer, I might think this is not relevant. So I'm wondering if we may see an effort at some point from one party to try and just kick this whole thing, that sentence out in terms of it not being something that a lawyer is required to respond to. That's really interesting. So it sounds like what you're saying is there's a conflict between the attorney work product doctrine and that section of this statute that requires the attorney to turn over everything that is relevant to this case. In fact, as I see this kind of unfolding, I see that potentially as an objection that is made, citing a case on attorney work product and someone resting on that, a court saying no, this mandatory initial disclosure says you need to turn it out and it goes up either on writ or post-trial as an interpretation of that. And then we see whether this sentence stands in terms of the statute. This will be interesting how this all plays out. And, you know, I know that at the end of the statute, there's a sunset provision. There is indeed. And so we'll get to play with this. I think we get to play with it for about four years and then it goes away unless the legislature set, it green lights it to stick around. Yeah, I think it is worth it. I mean, if it's worth it for the case and your client to push this one a little bit. I think it'll be really interesting to perhaps sit down and revisit this in another year, 18 months, and see how it's been handled both by attorneys and also by law and motion courts interpreting how the lawyers are behaving relative to it. Yeah, definitely. Well, thanks for taking the time to sit down with me and, and chat about it. Uh, thank you for having me. And thank you for listening today. Please email us at podcast at coopers.law with questions, comments, feedback, and suggestions on how you are approaching this new mandatory initial disclosure to California. Like what you heard? Share us with a colleague and leave us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice. To all of you doing justice out there, happy hunting.